thankful for what God is doing. Let's go to the book of Corinthians this morning, please. 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, I don't know. Listen, I don't have a PowerPoint for you today. I don't have scriptures for you today or verses for you today because I just want to, I want to just speak to you right, right out of my heart this morning. Um, I, I preach to you every week from my heart and from a, a passionate place, but I want to, I want to speak out of my heart uh, today. The reason I'm going to use these verses this morning in 1 Corinthians 16, then we're going to go over to 2 Corinthians. I'm not necessarily going to use these verses to preach from, but if you know anything about the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians, it's the great apostle Paul who penned not one but two letters to a church in a place called Corinth that he actually started. He established, he planted that church. For about 18 months, Paul hung around that place and got it going and got it moving forward. Church had its fair share of struggles, had its difficulties, and Paul would write these two letters to them to admonish them and to encourage them and to help them. Uh, but there are some concluding verses in First and Second Corinthians where Paul just simply speaks from the heart of the pastor that he was. And if you'll permit me these next couple of Sundays, I'm just going to preach a little series entitled From the Heart of a Pastor, from your pastor. I want to speak to you from my heart. So 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, these are some of his final exhortations that he gives. Here's what he says. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. He had no way to know that what he would write so long ago would be so relevant to where we are today. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. If there's ever been a time that we need to operate in love. God knows we are living in a time right now we need love. Go to 2 Corinthians, the very last chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. <clears throat> this is his final benediction, if you will, to this church. Here's what he says. Finally, brethren, farewell. Now watch what he says now. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. And here's how he concludes. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. I'm not going to preach on those passages. But do you, do you kind of feel the heart there of the pastor? He's, he's admonishing. He's exhorting. He's encouraging. He's speaking from his heart. I want to speak from my... Do you understand when I say that? I, I preach from my heart every Sunday, but I want to speak from my heart the next couple of Sundays. Just some things that, that God's been dealing with me about. So if we're going to use a title, I'm just going to use this the next two weeks from the heart of a pastor, from your pastor. Let's pray before we're seated. Father, thank you today for the word. Thank you for worship. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit today that's in this place. 
God, I believe you want to talk to us this morning. I believe that you want to say something to us today, God. So I'm asking you, God, to help me to convey and to communicate carefully my heart to these people today. God, they have taken time to get up this morning, to get dressed, to prepare themselves and be here in this service. God, I don't want it to feel like they have wasted their time. When they walk out of here, God, I want them to know that they have not heard. They've not heard from a man or heard a man, but they have heard the very oracles of God articulated in this building this morning. I pray that we'll be encouraged by the word today, God, that we'll be blessed by the word, God, that we'll be corrected and rebuked by the word if necessary today, Father. And God, that when we leave this place, we will know we've been in your presence and we bless you and thank you in Christ's name. The church said amen. God bless you today. You can be seated. Pastor Tony, thank you for your help. Unless you have been living in some remote, far-off, isolated island of the world, you are obviously aware of the events that have transpired this past week in our, our country. Things that I have watched go on, have almost left me with, Brother Turpin, no words to really speak or to really convey what I believe that I'm feeling, what the Lord wants to say to the church. It's almost as if every week between Sundays, we are presented with more chaos more casualties, more conflict, and more crisis to think about, to talk about, to preach about, and more than anything else, to pray about. A murderous rampage, racial tension corrupt politics, heinous and horrific executions at the hands of a sick and a twisted group called ISIS. We've heard black lives matter, blue lives matter. For that matter, all lives matter. From Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to Dallas, Texas, I'm telling you, our world is spinning out of control. Are, are we surprised? Yes. Should we be? I don't think we should be that surprised. As I sat back on, was it Thursday night and watched the events unfold before us on television. It's almost become a common occurrence to turn the news on and to hear something else has transpired and something else has gone on that leaves us in shock and awe and kind of leaves us reeling. But really, 
we knew that these times were coming because Jesus talked about these kind of days. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 3, it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when, when will these things be? Talking about the signs of the times and the end of the age. And what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famine, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, two, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus said at the end of the age, lawlessness There'll be no regard for boundaries and guidelines and what the law says because lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus talked about these kind of days. Luke 17 and 26 he said that as it was in the days of Noah, that so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Whatever it was like in the days of Noah is what it will be like just prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 6, it gives us a picture of what it was like in the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5 says that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. And every intent, the Bible says, of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually before God. If you go on down and look at verse 11, it said that the earth had become corrupt. Watch this. And the world was full of violence. It was astounding to me as I read that this week. In the days of Noah, the earth had become corrupt and violence was everywhere. And that's why God literally rained judgment down upon mankind. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he, he allowed rain to fall and he literally flooded the world. He wiped out the wickedness of mankind, but Noah and his family found grace in the eyes of God. They built an ark for safety, and God spared them. But as it was in the days of Noah, I'm telling you, we're watching right now firsthand those very same kind of days unfold before our very eyes. The world has become corrupt. The world is full of violence. A British scholar was once quoted as saying that the chief task of our time is to build a global society where people of all persuasions can live together in peace and harmony. I wonder if when she said that, if she realized the magnitude and the weight 
of what she said and how powerful and how prophetic it would be in the day and time that we're living in. One of our great denominational leaders one time preached a sermon. He was quoted in that message as saying that a world in crisis deserves a church in revival. I'd like to say to you today that a world in crisis indeed does deserve and does need a church in revival. But even beyond that, a world in crisis needs a church that is full of and flowing with the love and compassion and the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I pondered this week, I thought about this week. You know, some pastors, they prefer not to get in the pulpit and talk about current events, but I, I don't know how that we can even stand or sit here today and not talk about what's happening in our world. As I thought about that this week, I thought about where we are and what's happening and what's going on. My, my mind and my heart was drawn to a passage of scripture in the book of Psalms chapter 11 verse number 3 and David pins these words in the form of a question that if the foundations be destroyed what can the righteous do I'm telling you it doesn't feel like. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's happening. The foundations of this nation, spiritually, morally, and ethically, are being destroyed day by day and moment by moment. And here's the truth. I believe what we are watching unfold and what we are watching transpire is only the beginning of sorrows that are coming to this nation. I'm not here today to be a prophet of gloom and doom. I'm not here today to, 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 to trigger fear in the hearts of our, of our young people and in the hearts of men and women, but it's the truth. These are only the beginnings of sorrows. Listen, the earth is travailing the earth, as the Bible talks about, is having birth pangs. It is ready to be delivered up. It is ready for Jesus Christ to come. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Pastor, what can the church do in this moment? What are we going to do? Because I promise you, this will not be the last time that you turn on the television and you see the things that we've seen this week. If you think for a moment that the racial tension of this nation is going to end and we're just going to sweep it under the carpet, you are sadly mistaken. If you think for a moment that terror cells and terrorist groups like ISIS are, are going to be done and we're not going to have to deal with it again, you're sadly mistaken. If you think that that shooting at that gay bar in Orlando was just happenstance or circumstance and nothing like that will ever happen again. You are sadly mistaken. These are, without a doubt, as Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, these are perilous times. These are difficult. These are stressful is what that word means, times. I have to admit to you that when I 
watch what I've watched this past week and I read the things that are happening, there is a certain level of fear that grips my heart. It makes me anxious, James Hanks. It makes me nervous. It concerns me. And we're tempted to think that, well, we live in a little small town, a little small corner of Virginia. Nothing bad will ever happen here. That, that may not always be the case. Pastor, we don't, we don't want to leave here today and be full of fear. We don't, we don't have to leave here today and be full of fear. We can leave here today leaning on the everlasting arms of the Lord Jesus Christ and standing on the promises of God that declare to us that we will be victorious. And in the end, Jesus Christ will conquer every single nation and every single kingdom. So let me today just take a few moments. And from my heart today, I want to tell you three things that I believe that we can do, we must do, and we have to do in this time that we're living in. Number one, if you're taking notes, we must declare and we must demonstrate God's love at all times, in all places, and towards all people. I'm going to say that again. I didn't get these out of a book. I didn't get these from a colleague, it's just something as I sat and I thought, we must declare and demonstrate God's love at all times, in all places, and you hear me, and towards all people. And anybody, go ahead, if you're going to praise him, go ahead and do it this morning. And anybody that would celebrate the loss of any life and would sit back and take some kind of gratification of people being murdered, they have serious issues. A few weeks ago when that shooting broke out at that gay bar in Orlando, the audacity of some kingdom-minded so-called Christian people across the world to celebrate that as the wrath of God. I, I, the God that I serve, I don't, I don't serve a God like that. And we have a responsibility to not only talk about the love of God, but to practice the love of God. At all times, in all places, and towards all people. Listen, this is not a time for hatred. This is not a time for prejudice. This is not a time for bigotry. This is not a time for racism. This is not a time for murder. Listen, the church must not stoop to the level of this world. And I don't, I, I, I'm, I want to be careful. I don't mean to come across angry. I'm not angry. And I, I, I know, you, Pastor, your brow is furred and you, I'm, I'm not angry. Promise I'm not angry. I'm passionate today about what I believe God has communicated to my heart, so I want to communicate it to yours. Listen, we cannot stoop 
to the level of this world and practice what they're practicing. This is not a time to hate people. This is not a time to promote and to propagate racism and prejudice and bigotry. This is not a time to celebrate evil and murder and hatred, but it is a time for us to practice the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to all men, all women. Listen, love wins every single time. Love will always win the day. Listen, love won over 2,000 years ago at Calvary. It worked then, and I promise it'll still work today. Here's what the Bible says to us. We go to the book of 1 John chapter 3. And here's what it says beginning at verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Do you hear your pastor today from my heart? The message from the very beginning of time was that we love one another. That's why... The beginning of time was so messed up because at the very beginning, Gene Turpin, Cain rose up in a jealous wrath and he murdered his own brother Abel. He goes on and says, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Listen, there's a whole lot more than just physical murder going on in the world today. There's all kind of murder going on because people hate one another. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. He'd go on to the next chapter and he'd write this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is what? God is love. Somebody say that. God is love. Say it again. God is love. And this love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How much more plain can you be? If the foundations are being destroyed, what are we going to do as the church? We're going to declare and we're going to demonstrate the love of God at all times and all places and towards all people. Here's the second thing we're going to do. We're going to devalue falsehood. And we are going to defend the truth of the Word of God. We are going to devalue falsehood. And we must, we have to, we cannot afford to stop defending the truth of the Word of God. 
that little book right before Revelation that's called Jude. He wrote and he said this, earnestly contend for the faith. Fight for the faith. You understand that the Word of God is under attack on all fronts these days. You do realize that the truth of God's Word is seen by so many as politically incorrect, extremely intolerant and offensive, and we cannot afford to be silent. We must defend and declare the truth of the Word of God. But at the same time, we have to devalue falsehood. We have to devalue the falsehood that is found in hate. We have to devalue the falsehood that is found in racism. We have to devalue the falsehood that is found in prejudice. We have to devalue the falsehood that is found in people that want to push an agenda that is contrary to the Word of God. We must defend the truth of God's Word. I want you to understand that today there are people out there that are promoting and pushing all kind of ideas and theology that contradicts the truth of the Word of God. And we must devalue that falsehood. Because the Bible tells us in John 8 and 32 that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the the life. He would go over and write in John 17 and 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We must devalue falsehood and we must defend the truth of God's word. And what did Paul tell us in Ephesians 4 and 15? But speaking the truth in love. Church must speak the truth in love. We cannot afford to be silent at this moment. We cannot jump on the bandwagon of with of and with mainstream media that promotes such hatred and such prejudice and such bigotry. We must not jump on the bandwagon and support the hatred of ethnic groups or of lifestyles that are different than ours. I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, form, or fashion that we condone immorality or unrighteousness, but we can confront it and we can declare the truth about the Word of God with a heart that is full of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. A song we used to sing, You're my brother, you're my sister. So take me by the hand. Together we will work until he comes. There's no foe that can defeat us when we're walking side by side. What did he say, Brother Turpin? As long as there is love, we will stand. Here's the third thing. I told you I was going to be quick this morning. From my heart to your heart today. We must declare and demonstrate the love of God at all times and all places and towards all people. Number two, we must devalue falsehood and defend the truth of God's Word. And thirdly, we must desperately and we must diligently cry out to God. 
It's an old adage, an old verse that we use all the time. But I'm telling you, if we've ever needed it, we need it now. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and cry out and call out to heaven, I would forgive their sin. I would heal their land. If we've ever needed healing, we need healing in our nation today. Psalm 33 and 12 tells us that blessed is the, blessed is the nation whose God is Lord. We must diligently and desperately cry out to God again. We must have that spirit of Elijah on us that refuses to stop praying until we see the hand of God. Elijah, a man with a nature like ours, he prayed one prayer, and for three and a half years, God stopped the rain. And he prayed again, the Bible said. He was tenacious in prayer. We must pray until we see God move in our land and move in our hearts and move in our lives and move in our families. What must we pray for, Pastor? We must pray. We must pray for revival. We must pray for reconciliation. We must pray for racial walls and barriers to fall. We must pray for the restoration of lost men and women who are outside the covering of God's grace. We must pray for renewal in our families and renewal in our marriages. If we don't do anything else, we must pray and seek the face of God again. We must pray. I want to close with this story. It says that prayer has influenced our own nation's history. During the dark days of the Civil War when brother fought against brother and father fought against son, the United States of America was saved by the power of fasting and prayer. Pastor Tony, come on, please. Just begin to play for me. President Abraham Lincoln called for a day of fasting and prayer. His declaration for a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer began with this thought. Now listen, we're talking back in the 1800s now. Here's what he said. And in so much as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. It was a question he was asking. He went on to say this. We have grown in numbers, talking about America now. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we, he said, have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined 
Lincoln said, in the deceitfulness of our hearts, that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Listen to what he said now. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we as a nation, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. Boy, that's eerily similar to, I believe, the nation we're living in today. It behooves us then, he said, to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. He then set aside April the 30th, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting and prayer, and asked people in our nation to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes and keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. It was Abraham Lincoln that instituted a national day of prayer. And unfortunately, in our world and our nation today, we no longer really have set aside. The powers that be have decided that we don't need a national day of prayer anymore, and I must beg to differ. I want to go back to something I said just a few moments ago. I don't believe that everything that we're seeing transpire is necessarily the judgment of God, but I do believe that God is trying to get our attention. And this is just my personal opinion. You may disagree, and that's fine. You can talk to me later. I don't believe that God would judge a nation by letting people whose lives were weighing in the balance and not certain of eternity. I don't think God would judge a nation and have those people savagely murdered. I just don't think that God would do that. Now you may say, Pastor, I disagree. I believe God's judging our nation. That's completely, totally between you and God. But I don't, I don't believe that innocent people dying without Christ is God's way of saying, I'm judging America. Because it is not God's will that any man should perish. I do believe, however, that what we are witnessing through sick, deranged individuals is the work of the enemy to bring harm and to bring danger. Do I believe that America stands at the door of judgment? Do I believe that there is going to come a time that God's going to judge this nation? Do I believe there's been some things that have happened that have been God? I, I, I believe that some. I believe that. But it's not for me to debate and to try to figure out and discover is it God's judgment or not God's judgment. That, that, that's, that's not an issue here. But back in the book of Genesis when the door was opened for sin and it entered in the human race, we now live and occupy this world with people that are influenced by demonic forces that come to kill and to maim and to destroy and to hurt and to inflict pain. Will there come a time that God judges this nation? I absolutely believe there will come a time that God will judge this nation. He has no choice because we've turned our backs on Him.
well, Pastor, what's, 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 what's been the holdup? What's holding him back? Because there's still a righteous remnant of people that live in this nation that are still crying out and calling out to God and begging for his mercy. And if it was not for righteous, God-fearing, God-honoring people, this place would be in a whole lot worse shape than it is now. But like Abraham, when he went to God and interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, and God, if you find just five righteous people there, we need people today that will stand in the gap for our country and will pray again and diligently and desperately cry out to God. telling you that November is looming and if we've ever needed to pray over a presidential election we need to pray for this election this year God already knows God already knows who's going in office God already knows but here's what I do believe even though he's all-knowing, I believe that the prayers of the people of God could drastically shift and alter the way that it could possibly go. I said to Kelly last night that it concerns me that we're going to raise our children In 10 years from now, what will it be like? And we're going to raise our children in this culture, in this society. We need the mercy of God like we've never needed the mercy of God. And the church cannot pack up shop and go into hiding somewhere. church has got to stand up and we've got to be counted and we have to we have to demonstrate the love of God to all people we have to devalue falsehood and defend the truth of the word of God and be we have to diligently and desperately one more time cry out to the father bow your heads for a moment